My name is Anthony Day, and welcome to this seminar, Staying in Business and Staying in Profit. Since I first ran this seminar, I've been to a number of conferences, and there's more information, there's a lot of ideas which I want to add to what I put out the first time I ran this, which was uh, nearly a month ago, well, three weeks ago, 30th of March. I'm going to talk about sustainability, but I don't want you immediately to say, ah, gosh, sustainability, well, that's green, that's environmental. And although we're very keen on that, we've come here because we want to save money, and that's what we think we're going to learn about. Okay. First of all, let me make it quite clear that although I'm quite passionate about environmental issues, to the extent that some people say, oh, he's a nutter, I have to make it clear that I'm not a nutter, I'm a chartered accountant. And my point is that we need to look at all these issues from a totally practical and pragmatic point of view. I believe that being sustainable will help you stay in business, will help you stay in profit. It'll help you improve your revenues. It'll help you save your costs. And surely that's something we all want to do in the present economic climate. So bear with me. Let's talk then, first of all, about some definitions. What is sustainability? Well, Brundtland, uh, the Brundtland Commission in 1987 said sustainable development is meeting the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. That's 22 years ago. <clears throat> I think that could be revised. It's meeting the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of the present generation to meet our own needs. Because things are happening so rapidly. They've happened so fast since 1987 that it's not just our children and our grandchildren that we need to worry about. We've got to think about ourselves. The MIT says sustainability is the possibility that human and other forms of life on Earth will flourish forever. The possibility that human life on Earth will flourish forever. Isn't that a given? It's all very depressing, isn't it? Sustainability is enough for all forever. As I said, I want to be practical and pragmatic. Let's ignore these doomsayers. Let's look at what we can do to meet the challenges. And as I say, I think it's going to help us enhance our businesses, make them stronger, make our businesses the organizations that survive when we come out of recession. Triple bottom line. To refuse the challenge of the triple bottom line is to risk extinction. That's a quotation from John Elkington. What's the triple bottom line and what's that got to do with anything? The triple bottom line, well, is the economic and the social and the environmental bottom line. The economic bottom line is the most familiar because that's what we all deal in. How much money have we made? That's what it comes down to. The triple bottom line looks at the wealth of the organization from three points of view. The economic wealth, the social wealth, and the environmental wealth. And you could look upon these as three classes of assets, all working together towards the success of the business. If you don't have one or the other, you don't have success. The social aspect is the employees and the community surrounding the organization. The environment is the environment in its widest sense. It's the physical environment, but it's also the people and organizations that the business interacts with, including suppliers and customers. And the theory is that all three are equally important. If one leg of the stool breaks, the stool falls over. Sustainable business, then. There are five levels of sustainable business. Bear with me, it's important. The first stage is pre-compliance, and it's not a sustainable position. Pre-compliance means you are not complying with the rules and regulations laid down by the government and our friends in Brussels. 
If you don't comply, you're likely to be liable to penalties. When I was at the Low Carbon Best Practice Exchange before Easter, Emma Feeney, who's a solicitor at Dickinson Dees, told us that more and more clients were coming to her because they were being taken to court for non-compliance. Oh, what do they do, they said. Um, well, is there anything you can claim in mitigation? Uh, well, we are printing on both sides of the paper. Doesn't cut much ice. There are penalties. So how do we know what compliance means? What about these dozens of new regulations that come out every every week? I'm going to provide a link tomorrow with the recording, a link which will give you the working papers, a transcript of, of this, so that you can follow up. In there you'll find a web link, in this case for www.netregs.org. Netregs is N-E-T-R-E-G-S dot org. That's a website run by the Environment Agency, and it lists all the requirements by type of industry, so you can go there and find out if there's something you need to be doing. There are regulations on waste, there are regulations on water, there are regulations on handling chemicals, there are regulations on all sorts of different things. But that website has got the whole thing analysed by industry. That's a really good starting point so that you can find out what you should be doing. That brings you to the second stage, which is compliance. You've checked up, you know what you should be doing, you're doing it, no problem. Now, some people go a stage further. Stage three is beyond compliance, taking steps to do more than is required by the regulations. Why would anyone want to do that? Well, regulations are changing all the time, so it can make sense to keep ahead. It's also good PR. For example, there's no regulation that says you can't give away plastic bags yet, although there's some restrictions in Ireland. But supermarkets are cutting back on plastic bags because they realize that's what customers want and it's good PR. Equally, there's no law that says power stations have to trap all the carbon dioxide they produce. Actually, there's no technology, not on a commercial scale yet, but you can be sure that the first operator to install it will make a lot of fuss about it because it'll be good PR, and it will save them money because heavy emitters of CO2 are, uh, are financially penalized through the, emitting, the emissions trading scheme. So it makes business sense to do something. It will actually impact the bottom line. The fourth level is integrated strategy. Integrated strategy is where organizations want to be sustainable for all the right business reasons, and it affects everything they do in business. For example, I've been doing some interviews recently. I've recorded them as podcasts, and you can find them at www.susbiz.biz. That's S-U-S-B-I-Z dot B-I-Z. Uh, I've done one with Julian Walker-Palin from Asda, and he makes it quite clear that the things that they do save them costs and allow them to push down prices for their customers. It's about staying in business, staying in profit. And then the fifth stage is purpose or passion, where, where sustainability is the purpose or the passion of the organization. It's an organization which is typically founded by somebody who's totally committed to sustainability and to protecting the planet. They build their businesses in a totally environmentally responsible way. And while stage four people are, exact, are adapting existing businesses to be environmental, these sorts of organizations have been built as sustainable organizations from day one. It's the same result. It's a different approach. 
Another podcast, another interview, The City's Secret. It's a software house in Richmond, Yorkshire, and you can hear my interview with the MD, Martin Warner, again at susbiz.biz. We've already seen that there are government regulations which oblige every business to be sustainable. Even in the present economic climate, there's still consumer pressure to be green. New research from the Carbon Trust Standard shows that consumers still want to buy green despite the current economic climate, with 62% of consumers saying environmental concerns influence their purchasing decisions the same as a year ago, and just over a quarter saying they influence them even more than in 2008. The research shows that a business's green credentials have a significant impact on consumer buying choices. Two-thirds of consumers say it's important to buy from environmentally responsible companies, with one in seven saying they voted with their feet by deciding not to buy from a company based on their environmental reputation and almost a quarter based on a company's ethical reputation. Now, I think consumers are concerned about uh, environmental issues, although something else which came out last week from the Office of National Statistics said that uh, I think it was um, 47% are not concerned, but 53% are. I think a lot of people think, well, I think they feel guilty. They still drive big cars. They still take long-haul holidays. And they feel, well, if I deal with a green organization or an organization which has got green credentials, well, at least I'm doing my bit for the environment. So it doesn't really matter what their motivation is. If they prefer to go to environmentally responsible organizations, make sure that yours is one of them. All right. What about the bottom line? How can all this pressure be good for the bottom line? What's the effect it's going to have? How much can sustainability save your business? How much can it make for your business? In the working papers, which will be available tomorrow, I've done a very simple model. And I've said, what if we can improve our revenue by 1%? What if we can improve, reduce our staff costs by 2%. What if we can make savings on energy and resources and materials and water and waste of 2%? Now, it depends on the type of organization. It depends on your structure. But on the face of it, that is 5% dropping into the bottom line, improving the bottom line. It shows how small changes in costs and revenues can make big changes to the bottom line. What I'm saying is that uh, a 1% improvement in revenue, 2% saving on staff costs, 2% saving on energy, resources, materials, water, and waste, that puts that increases your bottom line by 5%. All those savings are expressed as percentages of revenue. Okay, so small changes in costs and revenue can make big changes to the bottom line because if you've already got 5% profit and you can, by very small changes, put in another 5%, you've doubled your profit. In fact, if you look at the working papers, you can see that it, um, you've more than doubled the profit. Important thing to remember, of course, is that small changes can work both ways. If those small changes went the wrong way, you could have wiped your profit out altogether. I'm not saying do all these environmental things and your profits will improve, your revenue will improve, and everything will get better. 
I'm fully aware there are all sorts of pressures out there at the moment which are pushing down on margins, which are pushing down on revenues and making it very, very difficult to trade. But if you can do things from a sustainability point of view, at least that should cushion the blow, make things better than they otherwise would be. How are we going to achieve this? Well, as I've said, consumers look upon environmentally responsible organizations as their green conscience. So if your organization has a reputation for sustainability, for environmental responsibility, for being green, this will attract customers. And some organizations, notably the public sector, won't trade with you unless you have a clear environmental policy. So what I've said is this could be worth 1% in revenue. And studies have shown it could be worth an awful lot more. So that's the first part. Your public face could improve your top line by 1%. Now, I also suggest that we could save something equivalent to 2% of revenue by improving, by motivating your staff. So, will motivated staff save you money? Bob Willard is a Canadian expert on sustainability, and he's done an analysis of a large number of, com uh, of companies, corporations, and he finds that if you can change staff attitudes, the average organization can increase its profits by at least 38% over five years. 38% over five years, and that's after discounting, although at present interest rate discounting doesn't make much difference, uh, and also allowing for the costs of training. 38% over five years. Well, we'll have some of that. If you have positive staff attitudes, you're likely to see better productivity. You're more likely to retain staff. A recent study found that as many as two-thirds of today's workers are either actively looking for new jobs or are merely going through the motions at their current jobs. While they still show up for work each day, in the ways that count, many have already left. However, if they believe in corporate policies and can identify with them, they'll be more productive. You'll be more likely to retain your staff. You may find people seek to work for your organization so that when you need to recruit, it'll cost you less because they're banging on the doors saying, have you got any vacancies? If everyone in the organization is motivated, the other actions you take will be more effective. Actions like turning off the lights, turning off the computers, saving water, uh, segregating waste, all that sort of thing. If people are committed to the overall policy of the organization and understand why they're doing these things, then they'll do them. So I've assumed you could save 1% on recruitment, 1% by retaining your staff, and 1% from improved productivity. And that's a lot less than people have found in these studies I've been quoting. Then let's look at materials, energy, and supplies. NWorks is an organization based in the Northwest, which helps businesses to be more environmentally responsible. And it's calculated after working with nearly 2,500 SMEs that they achieved 8% cost savings on energy, 2% cost savings on materials, 13% cost savings on water, 50% cost savings on waste. That's 8% on energy, 2% on materials, 13% on water, 50% on waste. All this is in the handout. Now, the key thing is that 70% of these savings were achieved through behavior changes. That's virtually cost-free. Behavior changes. And if you need, actually, to invest to make savings, there are grants available. There are grants available from the Carbon Trust. 
So you can get to keep most of the savings. But if you can just do it through behavior changes, 70%, well, that's what we call the low-hanging fruit. Why not do it? It's there for the picking. So the total savings in the model, which I've uh, included in the working papers, add up to 5.4% of turnover in addition to the original 5% profit. So that's more than doubling the profit. Yes, caveats, health warnings, you do need to examine your own organization to do your own sums. Every organization is different. A manufacturing or a distribution organization will have a very different cost and cost-saving profile from a pure service organization. If you want, if you want to uh, look at your organization specifically, give me a call. Uh, and my number is 07803-616-877. Give me a call and let's talk it through. Tonight, after this, if you like, um, or tomorrow, anytime, I'm here. So, yeah, do your own sums. You might save more. You can't control your costs unless you measure them. It's actually amazing how many major companies still don't know what they're spending on energy or water or other basic overheads. Not in detail, anyway. Of course, energy and water have been so cheap that we just have got used to wasting them. They, they, they're, there, they're there, and it, well, it doesn't need to cost very much. What you actually spend will vary for every company. Every business model, as I've said, is different. And you might say, well, we're in a tenanted building and the landlord has complete control over the lighting and the heating and there's nothing we can do. Well, what about the power? What about your computers? Are they left on all night and does the landlord pay the whole, you know, regardless of how much you use? I don't imagine he pays your electricity bill, does he? Is your photocopier on standby all night? Is your coffee machine on standby all night? All weekend? Every bank holiday? If you switch them off, aren't you going to save some money? Oh, it's not very much, you'll say. Well, perhaps it's not very much. Well, it's probably 30% more than it was last year. And anyway, how do you know it's not very much? Have you measured it? Do you use the same amount of electricity at night when no one's there as you do during the day? Some organisations have done uh, have checked out and they've been horrified by the results because they found, yes, they are using just as much electricity at night as they do during the day. At night, when there's nobody there. Why? Well, I don't know why. But I do wonder, when I walk up and down the local high street in the evenings, I do wonder why so many shops have got all their lights on. Now, I can understand that you may want to leave lights on the ground floor for security reasons, so you can see if anybody breaks in. But first floor? And second floor? Oh, are they restocking? Really? At half past ten on a Saturday night? Well, maybe, but every night? I, I don't really believe it. A lot of this depends on motivating staff to support the policy, to support the sustainability initiative. Your savings will depend on whether staff believe in what you're trying to do. Now, I mentioned the Low Carbon Best Practice Exchange in Newcastle. Incidentally, there's another one that will be in, um, in London in, in June and I'll make sure there's a link to that on the handout. But the delegates to this one that ran in Newcastle just before Easter had different experiences and different opinions. Most of them thought it was very difficult to motivate staff. They expected staff to be cynical about the whole thing as just another ploy by management to save money for themselves and for the shareholders. Stephen Weldon of the Go Ahead Group, which is one of the biggest transport operators in the UK, 
He described how bus drivers were trained to drive economically and how they were incentivized by sharing in the money which they saved on fuel. They had a direct benefit. And it was a win-win, of course, because the company was saving money on fuel and they were saving money as a reward for actually creating the savings. Other people said, well, this sort of thing isn't possible in our organization, um, particularly uh, the public sector said it wasn't possible. But, you know, every organization is different. Every opportunity for cost saving is different. Every potential incentive is different. We need to look at these things. Ben Wilgus of KPMG explained how his firm had a green suggestion scheme with a prize for the best. And the winner was sent on a trip to do something like protecting wildlife or preserving rainforests. So that's another win-win. It provided an incentive, and it also provided a lot of new ideas which the organization could adopt in order to improve its position, its uh, environmental responsibility. Another person was uh, Lindsay Pearson of Spark Response, and she told me how the staff at her company all identified with the business, and they saw improvements for the company as being improvements for their own benefit. Clearly, this was a family company, and clearly there was a very strong sense of belonging to this organization, but not a small, well, not that small, 185 employees. So um, it can be um, implemented at all sorts of, all sorts and all sizes of organizations. The, the people in the group that I was discussing this with talked about whether there would be a breakthrough in public awareness and motivation, because sometimes ideas get to a level where all of a sudden it, 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 it's a tipping point and everybody's talking about it and everybody thinks, yes, this is what's got to be done. I think uh, smoking is an example. It did take 50 years for that tipping point to be reached. There's a book which you've probably heard of, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. You can find a link to it on my website. That's all the W's, anthony-day.com and you follow the bookshelf link. Um, there's other links, other resources, which are available within the handout. Ten things you can do to motivate employees. Well, align messages with a corporate commitment. Walk the talk. What does that mean? Well, uh, an example, I suppose, is those executives from General Motors. You remember they uh, wanted some money from the government to bail them out, save them from bankruptcy. They were all running out of money and they decided to fly to Washington in the highly expensive um, private planes. That didn't really fit in. It's the same sort of thing. Walk the talk. Provide incentive. We've already spoken about the bus drivers who get money back. Sky has a carbon credit card for its employees, and they get credits. I'm not sure. I think you can use them in the canteen or something like that. But they get credits which are loaded up on their credit card for good green behavior. Choose something relevant to all. I think that's important. If it's not relevant to all, it won't be accepted. It won't be, nothing will be done. And of course, monitor progress, because if you don't monitor progress, then who knows what's going on and, well, they don't know how well or how badly they're doing, so there's no incentive to change behavior. Provide positive feedback is thank you enough. And again, the monetary incentives that some people have done provide very positive feedback. Provide resources. Some organizations go over the top, well, go a long way with that. Swiss Re apparently provides uh, subsidies or at least soft loans for people who want to buy hybrid cars. Not everybody can do that, but uh, it shows imaginative thinking. Uh, imaginative thinking again. Sky have got some sort of reef. I really haven't got into this. I'm, uh, you'll have to look at their website and find out more about it. 
but they've got this sort of reef, whether it's a, a real tropical fish tank or whether it's something which simply exists in cyberspace, I'm not sure, but it grows and it blossoms as employees help the company to be more carbon neutral. And keep the momentum going with celebrations and with awards, because after all, if it's helping the bottom line, if it's raising the profile of the company, this is a worthwhile investment, isn't it? Continue to improve, empower people, set up internal champions, make this work. Now, it's all too easy to focus on the short term and on immediate costs. To be truly sustainable, we need to look not only at the present cost of energy and of materials and resources, but whether these things will be available in the medium and long term at any price or at all. In these days of globalization, our supply chains are international. The weak link may be very, very far away, but we'll still suffer if it breaks. If you're buying rice and the paddy fields of India or Bangladesh are flooded and the crop fails, the price will go up. It'll, the effect will go along the supply chain and affect you, even though you're thousands of miles away. We cannot be sustainable if we rely on suppliers who are not sustainable themselves. They may be on the other side of the world or across the street, but we need to be sure that they're sustainable not only from the green point of view, but from the practical, able-to-supply point of view. You may have heard of the Carbon Disclosure Project. It was set up by the world's largest investors, and it asks the world's largest companies to report on how sustainable and secure they are because the investors want to know how risky their investments are. So these companies have set up the supply chain initiative to make sure that their suppliers are green and sustainable. Because after all, if you're Marks and Spencers, you don't want to find out that one of your suppliers is polluting rivers and another is chopping down tropical rainforests, because if the press finds out, they'll blame it on you. You don't want a supplier that's based in a floodplain and it's been flooded several times in the last three years. So if yours is a small organization, your major customers may come along asking about your sustainability because they want to protect themselves. And if you're a large organization, well, if you're any organization, you should be checking up on your suppliers to see if they're secure, to see if they're green. Now, for example, you and your colleagues probably spend quite a lot on travel, visiting clients, maybe visiting suppliers and so on. If you drive, the sort of car you drive determines your costs. Yeah, I know there's the prestige thing, and I'd like to drive a Range Rover too, but, well, fuel costs certainly began to bite last year when oil went up to $147 a barrel. It's come down again now, of course. It's come right down to $36 in January. Let's just look at the latest situation. Remember, oil is not just for driving around in large cars. Oil is for plastics and for pharmaceuticals and for fertilizers. Oil is fundamental for almost anything that we eat, use, or wear. Oil is the lifeblood of our industry, of our Western way of life. So in July 2008, oil went through the roof. It went, went up to $147 a barrel. And in January, it came right down again to $36 a barrel. Um, since the beginning of the year, it's crept up a bit. It's hovering around about $50 a barrel at the moment. So it's only a third of what it was. Well, on an international scale, yes. Except that since last summer, the pound has dropped against the dollar from $2 in July uh, to $1.4 to the pound today. 
So, oil cost £74 a barrel last July at the peak, and then it fell to £24.50 in January, and now it's about £35 because of the effect of the exchange rate. So it's almost halfway back to its peak for us in the UK. Now, which way do you think it's going to go? Yes. Oil plays a part in transport, plastics, pharmaceuticals, and agrochemicals. Any change of the price of oil hits our economy from multiple directions, not just at the pump. How is it going to hit you? Are you prepared? In the working papers, I include something which I call the COBRA matrix. COBRA stands for Control of Business Risks and Action. It's simply a grid which allows you to plot key issues to plot the criticality against the probability. Some things will be absolutely critical and certain to happen. And obviously you've got to focus on them and uh, determine what you need to do. Others will be trivial and probably won't happen, or trivial even if they do happen. You need to choose your own critical factors and you need to ask, answer these questions. What is the cost if this critical event occurs? What is the cost of being prepared for this critical event to occur? What is the cost of not being prepared for this critical event to occur? And what are your competitors doing? The paper which I include in the working papers is a matrix from a workshop which I ran in January. And I put some very general issues in there, like oil at $200 a barrel, a sudden loss of electricity to your business lasting more than four hours, interest rates, VAT rates, natural disaster breaching or flooding the, the motorway. But you need to think about what sort of things would affect your business. As I say, the events I've chosen are ones I've been using the workshop group since the last the start of the year. And it's interesting to see how things are changing and how expectations are changing. They're all very general events. Your organization will have specific issues which are important to its success, sustainability, and survival. I recommend you choose about eight issues and you plot them on the chart. But think very hard. Remember, 12 months ago, we would have said that nationalization of the banks would be extremely important, but unlikely to the point of impossibility. So therefore, think first of what's important. Weigh up the consequences of it happening and then decide how likely it is and how much it's worth spending to be prepared for it. So initially, let's look at the low-hanging fruit. Let's look at the savings that we can make. Let's look at the revenue that we can enhance by improving, by improving the reputation of our organization. But secondly, let's look at the critical issues. Let's look at how things are going to change in the future, or at least let's look at the effect on our organizations if things do change. Let's be ready for them. So in closing, and thank you if you are still with me after 32 minutes, in closing, it's not just about energy, and it's not just about petrol, and it's not just about waste. It's about an attitude of mind. It's about staying in business in profit, in the recession and beyond, in the new economy, which I think is going to be a low-carbon economy, which is going to be a very different economy when we come out of this recession. So, action points. Go to netregs.org. 
that's the Environment Agency site, and find out what your organization needs to do to meet the regulations. Have a look at susbiz.biz, where you can find interviews with key executives talking about sustainable business. This includes three interviews at the Low Carbon Best Practice Exchange with uh, Ben Wilgus of KPMG, Stephen Weldon of the Go Ahead Group, and Lindsay Pearson from Spark Response. I've also done one since with um, Harry Morrison, who is the general manager of the Carbon Trust Standard. And I'll shortly be publishing one with Doug Stewart from Futera, which is an environmentally responsible uh, media agency. Oh, you could check your electricity consumption. Have you? It's not too difficult to do. You could set up a strategy team. And, well, if I can help you, give me a call. 07803-616-877. I'll talk to you. I'm happy to spend some time on the phone and answer any questions that you may have. Uh, if I can help you with conference speeches or with in-house workshops or sustainability consulting, well, I'll be happy to talk to you about that. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to be gained. The world is changing. Well, I think i better stop the platitudes now, but I hope I've made the point that we've got a challenge. I believe we've got the means and we've got the determination to meet that challenge. The future could be very, very difficult, but I think it's going to be interesting. And I think for those of us who are prepared and who are determined to rise to the challenge, it's going to be very rewarding. My name is Anthony Day. I'm very grateful to you for listening. And I wish you well. I wish you a strong and sustainable future. Thanks. This is the end of my seminar. Bye for now.